Hello and welcome to the Week in Review. I'm Michael Curzon and I'm joined as ever by SD Wicket. Sam, how are you? Winter is coming, Michael. The weather has taken a turn. It's very, cold, out, it's very cold outside. I was walking home last night, uh, horrifically underdressed for the, for the weather and uh, yeah, it's me that, that, that uh, summer is over and the, uh, the dark days are here. Thank goodness for that. And by Luke Perry. Luke, how are you? I've got a different take on the weather. Um, although it is October, it is nice and sunny here. The, the weather seems to be holding up. Um, that don't know what a uh, what hell <laughs> you've been put through, Wicket, with the weather. But but it's it's one of the, it's sunny, but it's very cold. What more can you ask for? That's sort of the uh, no no no. I I, I like it. I, I like it. My 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 wardrobe is far more geared towards this time of year. But uh, enough about my uh, my. My fashion choices. Absolutely, that's uh, as ever an interesting start to the to the session. I think this is the first two weeks in a while where we've all been here. I might be Ooh. wrong there. We've sort of had a had a few months where we've been disjointed in one way or another most of the time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and the, the unthinkable happened, and I missed an episode. So uh, yeah, it's good to have the boys back. That's when you know we've really gone to the dogs. That um, is number ten on the Richter scale. That. Yeah, that certainly is. Um, and Luke, you can't use playing darts as an excuse for being not in session uh, another time since you've now got a ball behind you. So you, you might as well have a throw while we're talking. It'll probably be more interesting. All right. <laughs> Sorry, is that Nicholas Sturgeon's head I can see on the board? <laughs> yeah, something like I can figure far worse enemies than her at this time. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we'll, we'll go straight in. And I think the biggest story of the week um, has been the sentencing of Wayne Cousins uh, over the the kidnapping, raping, and and murder of Sarah Everard. Um, so that case has come to a, a its legal conclusion in any sense. Um, and I, I suppose one of the the stories that we might be interested in pointing to, since I think talking about the specifics of this case alone is fairly uh, uncouth, I suppose. Um, but more of the what more broad argument which has sprung up from it is the powers handed to the police over the past 18, 19, maybe 20 months now, actually, who knows, um, in the guise of sort of coronavirus emergency powers. So one of the things that was uh, reported in the Telegraph was that in the same month this uh, atrocity took place, ministers were warned by Mark Harper of the uh, coronavirus um, recovery group, I think, something like that, um, and some others as well, MPs and people outside, including journalists. In fact, they've been warning for months, not just in this month, that um, the powers handed over to the government and to the state were draconian, uh, including to the police as well, and that there was confusion over what the police could and couldn't do and what people could and couldn't do. I mean, we, we tend to forget that this crime took place sort of uh, in the midst of a lockdown, um, and that essentially what was what was said in court was that Wayne Cousins basically abused emergency coronavirus powers in order to lure uh, this this woman into his car in the first place um, by questioning why she'd been out when in fact she shouldn't have been. So I think it really it really draws attention to the the unprecedented powers that have been handed to the state and also the level of confusion around all of it, as I say, because we just didn't know what we were or weren't supposed to do and how much power the police had to stop this. I mean, we see videos from Australia, for example, of people being tackled to the floor if they're not wearing a face mask whilst in a park, <laughs> all this stuff. So actually, the situation um, before 
the, the, the main crime took place is not completely unimaginable. We've seen videos of it around the world and even, even other things where the police have entered people's houses for, for hate crime and all this sort of stuff. It's really coming to a stage where the, the actual powers possessed by the, the police isn't very well defined and in any case is far too high. Hmm. Well, it, it, there's a few issues there. It, and the, the key that I can think of is this, that which is that the, 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 the police are no longer a, a force for um, the prevention of crime, simply law enforcement. So they're always going to reflect what laws are on the books. Take Australia again, for example, right? They're, the Australian police who, I mean, I, I don't think ever had, you know, I never heard of them as being particularly violent or abusive prior to um, <laughs> latest developments, but because they're reflecting completely draconian laws, um, they almost have free reign to go around terrorizing people in, in front of their kids. On on Wayne Cousins, I mean, this is a guy who, who by the time he did this heinous act, he shouldn't have been a cop. He was, you know, he was affectionately nicknamed the rapist by by his colleagues. Um, you know, and when you have laws that allow the police to stop and detain people for simply being outside of their home, um, you're you're going to bring the worst out of people who already probably shouldn't be in the police yeah and those people with dark intentions as cousin was these characters will be drawn to um, an overarching police force and i think the, the, the other side of this tyranny coin is that um many britons or indeed much of the western world is very ignorant ignorant of what rights they have and should have even before covid i mean if, if you poll people um the question do you have to show your identification to an officer if he asks? I think many would get it wrong. And if they were asked on the spot, they'd probably just hand it over without um, a second thought. So passivism is perhaps another danger here, which the public has sleepwalked into. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that worried me when, when reading uh, some of the reports around this whole case is that, you know, Scotland now, Scotland Yard is now saying they're not going to allow uh, more than one um, ununiformed officer to patrol at certain times, that they must always go about in pairs so, it's a, so as to reduce the likelihood of something like this happening again, which I can well imagine creeping into the, the realm of uniformed police as well, uh, which would be frustrating because it's, it doesn't take much imagination to realise that um, single uh, uh, patrols are far more effective than groups walking together since they're fairly well distracted by conversation uh, or, or of occurrences between themselves rather than rather than looking at, around into the world and and trying to spot things that need to be resolved so that's something which i can imagine um being pushed into change by this but quite needlessly um which is a bit of a worry and we we've also seen some confusing advice from scotland yard on what to happen uh, what you should do if you're approached by a, an ununiformed officer so one of the pieces of advice is that if you're really concerned you should call 999 mm. um or or perhaps stop a bus which is passing by and jump on it or run into someone's house mm. um which um i mean some people have criticized as saying well you're trying to um you're trying to pin the blame onto the onto the person who is being assailed rather than the assailer, which I suppose you could also say with, with the well, police. Also, who had also you're, you're, you're also giving a, a convenient route out of detainment by people who have actually broken the law. Um, it's like, um, you know, it's like whenever this happens with the police, the, the solutions that come into play always 
just make a difference it's problem worse it's like um after the death of george floyd um when they were also about police reform and they ended up defunding uh police all over the country and then crime skyrocketed in those areas you know you can address it you can address a, a problem that's been seriously exposed by this murder without making the task of preventing crime even harder mm. what, what usually happens is there are more, more checks on the police more unnecessary checks on the police such as the police and criminal evidence act was it was brought, brought in when there were about only two arrest blunders and then the entire police force just had to have a revolution and that made sort of tracking criminals harder which similar to the us the solutions brought in on emotion largely is fueling a rise in crime yeah i mean we see the same in in other areas as well it's not just crime but going to failure again or perhaps even new zealand where you see a single case and it leads to either the whole state or even the whole country being locked down for a certain amount of time. It's always sort of a motive uh, policying. It's not of it is actually fact-based where they say, right, here's the size of the problem and therefore the size of our response should be this. It's always, right, we have a problem, let's respond with everything uh, in the hope that that might prevent any other problems occurring. But of course, as you say, it doesn't. It probably leads to more problems taking place because they've completely uh, oversized this problem and and prevent them from avoiding other ones which might be from other causes hmm. Hmm. there's anything to say on that no i think maybe we should change over i mean like i said i wanted it to be more of a broad point rather than talking specifically about the everard case because that's just, I, don't know, I don't like talking about particular cases um but there's plenty to talk about on shortages so perhaps we should go into that hmm. okay yeah go on well, the other big story of the week then, uh, possibly of two weeks, but I don't think we, we mentioned it last week, or maybe only in passing, is that of shortages, um, shortages of petrol. And we're, we're told we might see shortages of Christmas food and toys this winter um, and of all other sorts of goods. Um, now, unsurprisingly, the, the prime target of blame for all of this is that that forgotten word over the past two years of Brexit. Um, we're told that workers being forced home after we voted to leave the European Union is the cause of all of this. Um, but as always, that's rather surface level and in fact, just not true. Um, one of the, the primary reasons is in fact sort of the lockdowns, which um, Luke, as you were saying before we recorded, has not only uh, created a year in which there was no sort of basic training given because nobody could attend anywhere. We see the same with driving lessons, where waiting times now for lessons and tests are so horrendously long because a year was cancelled from it all. Um, and also to people leaving during the time of lockdown policies, which which we did see. Um, so always confused blames, which lead, of course, to incorrect solution making. And the, the problem doesn't seem likely to be quickly resolved. Oh, I think the country is now gripped in panic mode. It's the crisis, well, the so-called crisis started because a document was leaked. Then people got panicky. Humans being the, the herd animal they are, begin bulk buying all at once. And uh, sort of a, a week later after uh, the pumps were clogged, there, um, there seems to be a combination of people who still think there is a crisis and people who are now desperately low on petrol because the queues have been so long. And I work in the service station and uh, I arrive for work at about half five in the morning and the queues are backed up all the way onto the, onto the motorway, which at that time of still night is, is rather dangerous. So, um, and 
as I say, there's no end in sight. There's still sort of a shortage of drivers and a shortage of petrol. And uh, so long as the media keeps a microscope on the on the events on the ground, it, it'll continue. Hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned that people will be blaming Brexit for this when you know there's you can see the same thing happening on the continent too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, I think there's actually been some cases of people posting pictures of sort of food shortages in, in, in supermarkets and it's turned out they've been in yeah, the shop yeah. on the continent rather yeah. than they've uh, they've forgotten to crop out the German sign uh, <laughs> overhead. Yeah. Yeah, that might be quite telling. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So no, yeah, as always just the wrong the wrong sort of cause being attributed to it. Um I'm gonna say something I've forgotten more. I've got a sign to go on here. Okay, you go. Well, there's a there's um there was a YouGov poll on, on Tuesday, um, which found that uh this is quite, this is quite funny, and, and this is something that's sort of quite universal across different issues, which is that um up to half of people polled um blame the media for the uh, fuel shortages. Uh, bear in mind, as, as Luke said earlier, we're in we're in crisis mode, and that's exacerbated massively by the media class, who you know who love a crisis it, it gives them you know it gives them exposure it gives them clicks um and you know and and it's it's been um overblown um the, the yeah the, the the petrol panic was by and large fueled by media hysteria um the the good pun, huh? pun. <laughs> fueled yes um yeah, I mean, it's true because I mean, there have been times in the last couple of years where fuel has hit this um has hit these lows but the difference between then and now is that it wasn't met with a feast of you know of of, of journalists or pumping fear into the public mm, yeah i think one of the wider questions of all this as well whether it's it's lockdown or brexit that's driven some of the workers um away onto the continent we should question whether we want a workforce to be built off um built off people from other countries in the first place. That seems to be one of the largest problems. You always read people saying, oh, look, it's Brexit's fault for driving back all the foreign workers. And you think, well, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Why are we so reliant on this in the first place? Surely we should be trying to resolve that problem rather than begging for people to stay in the country to work here or to come across on visas. Always, again, just the completely wrong solution from, I suppose, from journalists who don't like the idea of their own countrymen uh, working hmm. Uh, in such jobs, they certainly can't pitch themselves doing it or anybody they're related to. So while they want anybody else, might as well yeah. import some people who don't care about us as much and then send them back later in the year. Yeah. What, why, why would you why would you um, take the uh, the option of, you know, training and retaining British workers rather than taking the cheaper option, which is, you know, import foreign drivers who are willing to to work for less money? Yeah. And for more time as well. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and and people who are sort of more locked into the job because they haven't got, you know, mum and dad's move back in with it if, it, if it if it falls apart, you know. No, that's true. Yeah. So it's 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 one of those where we see um, uh, it, it's quite amusing, really. This the the people who um, really wanted Brexit to fail um, are also those who just simply don't care about sort of a British workforce. They don't see that as being anything important, which isn't surprising, I suppose, considering they're their emotional ties to the continent in any place. But it's, where does this stem from? Why do they, they hate the country so much that they, they both don't want it to be independent, either in, in a legal sense or a, a law sense, or for it to have its own workforce? They so want 
our workforce to be built up from other countries. You know, you, you always see hear the line about the NHS where they say, oh, well, you know, my sister was um, was born through a midwife from this country and I had my hip replacement from somebody in this country. It's something they, they really love the fact that everything is done by people from elsewhere. They just can't stand the idea of British people being responsible for anything that is done in Britain. Yeah, and obviously they're, they're rootless metropolitans mm-hmm. and they can they can financially avoid the consequences of high levels of unskilled immigration they're they're not affected and uh, they can benefit from it because um there's a stereotype of the rich ramona in london hire by well hiring all these um foreign daycare workers so they don't have to look after their own children and they don't have to spend more money on perhaps <laughs> a british-born worker and uh, you, you see the steps you see them having this stereotype themselves they um i was at the uh, a conference not well i was at sort of a my first year at university i accompanied one of my friends to, to a conference young people discussing brexit and of course nine people were ramonas and he was the only brexiteer and one of the ladies in the audience stood up and said why are these brexiteers so enthusiastic about it all don't they look around and see that their bus driver is foreign their nurse worker is foreign their, their pre-a-manger cashier is foreign and it's very insulting maybe in some cases that's why they are so enthusiastic <laughs> Yeah. Also, like, like you say, oh, who's going to do these jobs? Who's when they go? Well, maybe I don't know. Maybe some of the one million unemployed young people in the UK and rising, yeah, and rising, yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe some people who you know have had their livelihoods cut in half in the last year and a half could maybe be retrained. I mean, it's something that requires like a bit of foresight, a bit of planning, and a bit of investment, and you can completely mitigate this whole situation. But no, I mean. They would rather take the moral high ground of saying, you know, oh, we we rely on these people rather than what the reality is, which is, yeah, people from foreign countries do come here and and, um, do good things. But, I mean, it's not because they're foreign and they're here. It's because they came here and they took advantage of British infrastructure and British education and British training. Those same systems could be completely flipped and put to use to get some people from, from a country who are... Know, suffering economically, who are stuck on UC, um, who are you know are out of university without prospects in hell, you know you can help some of those people rather than just importing cheap labor, labor market. And it's it's funny because these people will very often, you know, uh, bemoan the evils of capitalism while while um, justifying its core negative trait, which is the, you know the driving down of wages. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, we're, we're hashing some Brexit arguments here, but one that I always quite liked on the whole sort of migration and work base was that it was really sort of patronising and, and quite cruel to the, the migrants themselves to say, uh, we've got lots of free jobs. All our unemployed certainly won't do them. No, we're not, we're not going to be scooping down to that level. And young unemployed, no, 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 we won't get them to do it. Rather, we'd, get you, we'd like you to come from your own country and to do the work that we'd rather not do ourselves instead. And we're not going to pay you that much for it. And you might have very long hours. It seems really, um, I don't know, just like looking, those, those people who, as we've been talking about for the past 10 minutes, sort of 
really love to to highlight the work done by uh, foreign workers in this country at the same time have what really at the deep level seems to be a very patronizing view that we brits can't do this work we don't want to do it but they'll do it for us it's fine mm-hmm. um, yeah 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 also you know they, they, they you know they, they'll, they'll sort of celebrate the you know the 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 nigerian nurse in the and just but you, need, but you know who really needs nigerian nurses nigeria yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it it gets really quite um quite sketchy and perhaps not so funny when you when you consider the examples of uh fruit pickers i think i think the the <laughs> idea of us not being good enough for the work of picking and to require uh, foreign labor forces to do that for us is i mm. don't know maybe maybe thinking back to occurrences in the past doesn't present the very best image of our country today yeah i mean like, it, it seems. how how are you gonna like you know don the mask of you know a uh, a uh, a caring um you know uh philanthropist when you're when if if your ideas come to fruition you're literally going to rob poor countries of their you know their their best and brightest yeah I, I think another problem here uh from where this stems at least is the the um the over jollification of the idea of university that everybody should go or or even actually sixth form or college that everybody must go to sixth form or college and then preferably to university as well such a stupid idea so many people aren't just aren't geared for that sort of life um and that's not a criticism in any way it's just to say that people are different um that for some academic pursuits aren't ideal um and that their their life would be better spent uh, both for themselves and for the country more broadly elsewhere and i think that's where you know um work in other fields and things like apprenticeships actually help with this slightly although the the, the pace at which they're picking up is too slow against the the behemoth of, of university life um but if we were to place less of an emphasis on all this then uh, again the need for foreign workers would be much lower because we'd already have people at much younger ages finishing school realizing yeah i'm not going to do much in pursuing a life in uh, at university you know spending three years doing a course they're not too bothered about and then going and working in an office for the rest of their life anyway in a not particularly exciting job what's the use of that they might as well pick up a proper trade somewhere and perfect themselves in it um much better i think than sending them off to uni getting in foreign workers and then forcing our own workers to live in misery hmm. Funneling millions of, of young people into university wants to educate them. It was a deliberate act on the Blair government to create the, the new wave of, of labour activists. Yeah. University was, of course, by then for a very long time left wing dominated. And Tony Blair thought, hey, let's create all these new university towns. And when the students flood in and vote in our general elections, they'll all turn red. And uh, so we live in the consequences of. Um, in the end, not so wise political move. Hmm. Also, but also, it's funny because that was, you know, that was a Labour government who came into power in '97, in the wake of the the complete, you know, de- de- the complete, you know, decimation of um of British industry. manual industry in the '80s and '90s, right? Who, I mean, could had probably a very the clearest mandate possible to reinstate British industry, but instead they focused on um, creating a, you know, a, a, a what. A, half the young population being you know overeducated liberal arts metropolitans who are utterly unequipped to fill the market when other job when other other jobs are required you know like the, the the consequences of um blair putting half the young population into liberal art settings was that now that there is a shortage of hgv drivers there's there's no pool of people to to, to revert into 
Mm. And it's also changed society as well for the worse. I mean, Luke, you were saying about the, the, the extent to which universities at that time become more left-wing. I think the idea of university generally uh, is in its very nature quite left-wing because it, it takes people away from their localised setting to some, uh, to some city area, away from their family for three years uh, where they're supposed to live independently rather than communally uh, from their parents and their community. And I think after them three years, people are very unlikely to want to go back to their parents. I mean, it's after having lived independently for three years, certainly made me want to carry on living independently because it's something you get um, used to as a form of habit. Um, and I think the damage that has on community life um, also can't be understated. I mean, I remember when I was at uni, ironically, reading about um, or studying the English Civil War, and there's the whole debate of before the Civil War of communal areas and, and sort of more, um, not urban, but individualistic areas where people lived in their own uh, siphoned off areas. That's where the whole chalk and cheese idea comes from. Um, and it, there was a big emphasis on nobility going to university and the way in which that affected them. After they went to university, they became different people and their, their aims when they got back and the way they ruled was very much different because they, they no longer had the sort of the um, desires of the people who they lived around in their minds. Instead, they'd sort of focused on their own ambitions and mm. changed them as people. Yeah, you, you, spend, you, spend, you spend three years in a, you know, a mollycoddled, utopia with a with a progressive monoculture and then you know sort of throw your arms in the air when you graduate and there's no prospects for you yes that's true you know it's it's been three years having your prospects there are are located in um inner cities which are still away from the family and any sort of community Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're sort of herded into into that world Mm. And now we're supposed to celebrate as an alternative that we can work from wherever due to remote working, which I think is even more miserable. Um, but that's that's for a different day. Um, well, since we've been talking about you know the whole Blairism ideas um, and 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 so forth, we might as well move on to the last topic we we're going to discuss, which is conference season. Um, it struck me as we started recording. Um, uh reminded me i should say of your old reports on pmqs sam which lasted what for about a month and then we thought actually maybe there's not much point because these these events are so dull nothing Mm. is actually said at them it's just sort of a rehashing of rehearsed answers Mm. which tell us nothing i think the same could be said for conference season uh really really very much unimportant nothing Mm. new is said The, the whole point it seems is to avoid anything new being said it's just about, um, rather ironically, considering the Labour Party's aversion to flag waving, the whole point of conference season is about flag bearing, uh, gathering the troops and, uh, I don't know, just trying to instill them with some, um, what's the word, some confidence about the agenda that they already knew was being set forth. But perhaps uh, this time round, as maybe with most, the opposite was the, the result and it's, it's been rather uh, rather yeah. Yes, my, my my short-lived coverage of PMQs. Um, the only good that came from it was that it accelerated my complete descent away from um, Parliament um, as a as a functional institution. Um, the 
so we're we're in between conferences at the moment we had labor conference last week which was a a wall-to-wall meme fest of just utter lunacy um and the uh, really bad and the tory conference this weekend um it'll probably have started by the time this this goes out but uh i don't have much faith for that either um the Labour conference was, I mean, there are all these videos going around on Twitter of, you know, young Labour people giving these speeches. And I I didn't have the audio on for any of them, but I could probably <laughs> predict with some accuracy what was being said, which was yeah. comrades, 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 Green New Deal, comrades, Green New Deal, Palestine, comrades, Green New Deal, Palestine, comrades, comrades, comrades. Oh, you, you forget as well. Um, please, all you white men, stop putting your hands up. Oh, y- yes, yes. Yeah. Of course, which was a genuine, genuine statement, actually, in, in one of them which I remember hearing a lot at uni, that's sort of a, a new popular thing, isn't it? It's not that um, that we should be choosing women to talk instead, it's that men should stop putting their hands up because not enough women are, which I don't know, find quite striking. But yeah, it was, it was, it did seem really bad actually. I mean, we, we had, there's been the whole trouble around trans, which has sprung up where uh, Keir Starmer says, oh, it's, it's, what is it? It's not right to say that only women have cervixes, I think was, one of his good statements. Um, the next bond should be a woman, mm-hmm. which makes you question whether, in fact, it, it could be a man who claims to have a cervix. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, perhaps most uh, famously was Angela Rayner's scum comments, uh, mm-hmm. scum comments, which her her response to all this was brilliant, I thought. She said, oh, well, it's just a... She, she almost made out that it was an affectionate word in the North, um, which seems <laughs> to me the opposite of the case. I think the further North you get, probably the more insulting the word is because people who live in areas which those down south describe as scum would, would probably use the word scum with even more scorn. That's my experience anyway. I think that's what they call, I think, I think that's what they refer to as the bigotry of low expectations, right? Yeah. They, oh, in the North, people say scum all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to connect with your lost Northern base 101. <laughs> well, they love it, don't they? These people love to claim how working class they are um, when so clearly they're not. And, that's and I not, saw this at oh, university as well. It's just being working oh, class. Yeah. It's just so fetishized, even when these people are middle class to a T. Well, it's because it's, they'd, they'd all stand up and say, speaking as a as a this or that. And those people who had no afflictions and who had lived very comfortably had to think of something. So they'd say, well, speaking as a working class. Speaking as a, you know, three pints of Guinness in important policy attendee. I, yeah. yeah I, find that, I found that very, very odd. One thing I found they, about they all did it. everybody did it. One thing they I found about conference just excludes you from all debate, which is yeah. the intention. That's the intention, yeah, of course. These people don't want a discussion; they want to shout, they want to call people scum and heckle the speaker. Yeah. One thing I found about conference, especially, especially Labour conference, is that the 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 major the main purpose it serves is to create a party line for the next year. It's basically a software update for the party apparatchiks. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so what do you make of the message then that was spread? What, that of which you can, you can garnish from it? Well, it's just the same old bland, vacuous utopianism. It's, there's not really anything to write home about because it was identical to 2019 and 2018. Um, it's just the same as pro- same usual, which, which is that, you know, you have ostensibly a, a, a centrist moderate trying desperately and probably failing to um to uh, synergize the the blairite wing and the back crazy you know millennial oh, I yeah i mean I say that the blairite wing is any more um palatable by the way um 
I'd say, I'd say Blairite's more dangerous because that's seen as more electable. Yes, yeah, that's about but it. I, I, actually, I much prefer listening to and and actually am much less scared by the idea of these crazy people getting power because they're so crazy that they'd they sort of be lost in their own bliss of being there. They wouldn't, I mean, they wouldn't do very much. Blairite is trying to unite the party that is far too radicalised and puritanical to, to even coexist with each other. The the old working class bases of the north and the midlands that that they're gone. They're not coming back and so you're left with the, the Blairite Metropolitans and the uh, the Bat Crazy Metropolitans uh, and uh, even within the Bat Crazy Metropolitans there's these different conflicting tribes which if you were stuck them down in your select committee room or god forbid Downing Street they'd never agree on anything yeah that's it uh, well they'd spend so long on the preamble saying right we want x amount of women standing up in this session and by women i'm i'm not excluding those who uh, you know so forth you know, you'd have so long deciding just on who can stand up and who can't that they never actually get anywhere um I mean, I remember way, a John. few years ago there was the, the united states um socialist convention <laughs> and uh, <laughs> It was. It just felt like a complete parody. People were going at all points of privilege. I'm very uh, sensitive to audio overload, so can everyone please keep the chatter to a minimum? And uh, I think that the guy who said that had said the word guys or something. Mm. That was yes, that's it. Yeah. So mm. Some transgender person jumps up behind him and says, "Point of personal privilege. Can no one use?" So that will that will be uh, the future yeah. review of oh, TMQs, which yeah. which we will get. Wicked point, to revive because point, that point would of, be hilarious. Point of, point of, also, they're doing this as well instead of clapping. Oh, yeah, yeah, no clapping, no clapping. Jazz hands instead of clapping. Yeah. Um, well, I was talking to Cluston about this on OCP this week, and um, I basically made, made the point that it almost doesn't really matter what the what you know the back crazy young people say at Labour conference because for the foreseeable future, Labour will simply not be in power just because of the, just simply because of, of demographics. Um, the current voting makeup of the country. Um, over 60s outnumber people uh, 18 to 29. So the, the core Tory demographic, it just vastly outweighs the Labour demographic. So until, you know, uh, I mean, and, and, I, and I dread this day, until, until our generation actually run the show, there's not gonna be, there's not gonna be a, a, a Labour, or at least um, a, uh, a, an openly left-wing government for a while. Um, so it, it doesn't really matter what they say because next yeah. year there'll be a new software update and they were saying new back crazy things. Um, but also though, it doesn't matter in the sense that even if it were to get into power, it's not very much difference having an openly left-wing party and a, a, a party which is left-wing behind closed doors. Um, I don't see much of a difference. And, and speaking of sort of the 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 massive attempts of trying to appear working class i think we're probably going to see that more at the conservative conference this year than we did at the labor conference obviously the labor conference was this year all about cervixes um but i think the the conservative one will be all about working class uh talk because they want to you know appear to the whole red wall uh sort of talk or blue wall, whatever you want to call it now uh so yeah i think that's going to really dominate it and that they're, they're going to be just as identifying uh, what do you call it they're going to be talking just as much about identity yeah um as the labor party was perhaps in different areas but it will be be no less insufferable uh, and meaningless of course because it's all just it's all chatter um and and doesn't actually make a difference at the end of the day but well, tories in the anyway are, are on the same identity groups, just about two, three years behind. We, we saw Boris Johnson after he got his stunky majority saying, oh, look how many women and gay people we have in the House of Parliament. And if, 
you can't distinguish if you didn't know whether that was a Labour Prime Minister, a Liberal Democrat Prime Minister, Green Party Prime Minister, or yeah. as it happens to be the case, a Conservative Prime Minister. Mm. Yeah, we saw the same unquiet. with the reshuffle as well, where we saw a lot of people who had been in positions for quite a long time taken out uh, and their experience was placed behind the importance, it seems, or at least as the report suggested, the identity of people who were mm. uh, who replaced them. But 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 th this is this is the this is the best thing to be exposed though. The the core delusion of politics is that politics is what it seems to be. You know, is, is that is that what people tell you in politics is is what they mean or what they actually intend to do? Um, and it becomes very very clear that the the government is only one of several bodies that actually run the country. And even if we did have a conservative government, which we absolutely do not. They would just be outnumbered within the elite ranks. Um, the 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 idea of you know feminizing society, you know, like Johnson saying, you know, we're going to build back better and more feminine, which which I mean doesn't does, doesn't make any damn sense. But it, it just it alludes to one thing, which is that the the country isn't particularly run by Parliament. It's run by the NGO class, run by the media, who are all in lockstep on this, and the government are, you know, ostensible opposition to it in that, you know, every election they come out against wokeness, but I mean, they're, they're still playing ball. Um, so again, it doesn't, although we're here to talk about the conferences, it really almost doesn't matter what's being said, because what's going to happen is just an inevitable progressive slide until um, the, the mere starting point of conservatives in five years time will be unthinkable today. Because it's, it's going to be it's just lurching leftwards, lurching leftwards, and as soon as and with every year that the Tory party becomes more and more ingrained within the global elite, that message is, is just going to get stronger. The, the 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 progressive shift leftwards is just going to continue happening over and over and over again, because it's not to to be the prime minister isn't to run the country; it's to run parliament, which is just one you know one branch on the tree. Mm. I think that should be the title actually of this episode: launch lurching leftwards. I like that. Cthulhu privilege. <laughs> Cthulhu always swims left. Yes, well, uh, we'll use that. That'll be good. Um, well, I think on that, unless I've you got anything else to say on conference, although as, as we've pointed out, there's not very much to say since no, none of it really matters anyway. Yeah. Um, we well, talked about all the conferences. Yeah. Well, you say it's conservative conferences this week. I had no idea to be honest. This this weekend. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it starts tomorrow. Okay, we'll have a bit of a jab at that next week then, shall we? Um, from from what we see of it. If but it's worth it, yeah. If it's worth it. But until then, uh, thank you, everybody, as always, for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. And um, hope that you might join us next week. Cheers. <laughs>